This morning, I want to do something a little different, and we're going to deal with theological issue. But I'm always cognizant of the fact that we have visitors, people come in, and sometimes people who have been coming to Grace Church for a long time, struggling with the burden of sin and the feeling of guilt. So I don't want to omit the gospel. So this morning, I'm going to start with that, and then we'll move into the theological issue. So here's a brief summary of the gospel. You know that we are members of a fallen race. All of us are sinners. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the glory of God, which means that none of us could possibly earn our way into heaven or make up for the sins we've already committed. No matter what we did to try to pay that price, we can't pay it. But Christ paid it on behalf of those who believe. That's what his death on the cross was all about. And Scripture makes this promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Scripture consistently points us to faith in Christ as the way of salvation, and I wanted to make that clear up front. Now, I want to talk about a theological issue this morning, uh, the charismatic movement. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, We're going to look at what the Bible says about the charismatic gifts. I was prompted to do this this week because a group of guys who are making a film on this issue posted it on the internet and, uh, and I got tons of feedback because they're featuring in that, in the trailer for the film they're doing some, uh, snippets of an interview they did with me to talk about this issue and people started hammering with me with, with questions and complaints, charismatics who say, you'd have to show me some exegetical proof that the the miraculous gifts have ceased. You'd have to show me proof from Scripture that speaking in tongues is not for today or whatever. And so I want to take up that challenge this morning, and we're going to see what the Bible says about the charismata, these miraculous gifts such as tongues and and healing. And we're going to focus on the gifts that are listed here in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. And notice, these are miraculous and mostly revelatory gifts, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, and I think the context here shows he's talking about a supernatural measure of faith. These are all supernatural gifts, uh, except arguably that one, faith. The others are a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, those are revelatory gifts, that you, you have the gift to know something or, or have wisdom that didn't come from your own intellect. Gifts of healings, uh, the working of miracles, prophecy, the distinguishing of spirits and various kinds of tongues, and the translation of tongues. So that is a category of spiritual gifts, supernatural gifts that he's giving there. And that list stands in sharp contrast to another list you find in Scripture. It's a list of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 9, where you have gifts like preaching and service and teaching and exhortation and generosity and leadership and mercy. That's the list in Romans 12. Those Romans 12 gifts are all ministry-related abilities. The gifts listed there in Romans 12 are are neither supernatural nor revelatory. Now, to be fair, the first gift, if you look up Romans 12, you find the first gift in the list is named prophecy in most English versions. But it's using a word that simply means to speak the divine will. In fact, here's a definition from Thayer's Greek Dictionary. This word speaks of, quote, 
a discourse declaring the purposes of God, whether by reproving and admonishing the wicked or comforting the afflicted. So it's a word that applies not only to direct revelation, we, that's what we think of when we see the word prophecy, but it also in Scripture sometimes just speaks of preaching the word of God. Anyone who is gifted to proclaim the word of God with authority, he speaks prophetically. That's what we call preaching. Uh, in fact, 2 Peter 1.19 refers to Scripture as the prophetic word, more sure. In other words, Scripture is infinitely more sure, more reliable than anyone's personal experience or intuition. So when you proclaim God's word faithfully and authoritatively from Scripture, you are speaking prophetically, not in the sense that you're getting direct revelation from God, but in the sense that you are proclaiming prophetic truth with prophetic authority, and that is a common biblical use for this word prophecy. You have it, for example, in Revelation 11, verse 3, where the two witnesses will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. What are they doing? Well, the context suggests they are declaring the word of God with authority. They're preaching. They're doing open-air preaching, in fact. And so, because you find that word in this group in Romans 12 with other non-miraculous gifts, I think the word prophecy there simply refers to preaching. It's the prophetic declaration of truth from the Word of God. But anyway, not to get bogged down in, in the particulars, notice that regardless of how you nuance each expression in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, what you have here are clearly two vastly different lists of spiritual gifts. And it's clear that these two lists are qualitatively different. They fall into two distinct categories. You have miraculous gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and non-miraculous gifts in Romans 12. Romans 12 is dominated by non-miraculous abilities, spiritual gifts like all of us have. The gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 are special and miraculous gifts, and those are the ones we're talking about this morning. These are sometimes called the charismata. They are gifts that modern charismatics are most interested in and fascinated by. They are miraculous and revelatory gifts, and, and in fact, the more outlandishly and spectacularly you're able to manifest the charismata these days, the, the more you will impress modern charismatics. To the average charismatic nowadays, if your spiritual gift is merely a tool of edification like mercy or service or teaching, the typical charismatic might tell you, you're not even spirit-filled. So the distinctive claim of the contemporary charismatic and Pentecostal movement is that these special gifts, the charismata, those miraculous gifts like tongues especially and prophecy, those should be available today, they say, exactly the way they were in apostolic times. And charismatic doctrine is therefore shaped by the belief that these miraculous and revelatory gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, plus all of the supernatural phenomena that are mentioned in the book of Acts, all of those special abilities, these things they claim never ceased. And all those gifts and miracles are supposed to be fully operational and fairly commonplace today. That's the charismatic claim. Now that view is called continuationism. That's the theological term for it. It's the idea that the charismata continue to be viable spiritual gifts through the whole church age, and they are commonly manifested 
in the church today. That's the teaching. In other words, they claim that everything the Holy Spirit was doing, as you see described in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, all of those things should be ongoing today. And I contend that no one actually believes that because it's manifestly not the case, but charismatics make that claim nevertheless all the time. The opposing view, the view I hold, is cessationism. Cessationism is the belief that these miraculous and revelatory spiritual gifts pertained uniquely to the apostolic era, and, and those gifts, gifts ceased at some time before the end of the first century or thereabout. There's no, there, there's no necessary date on which these ceased, but you can see them diminishing as you read through just the New Testament church history, what we have. Now, in case you don't know, I'm a cessationist. In fact, every teacher here at Grace Community Church is a cessationist. This is our church's official position. It's spelled out in our doctrinal statement. In fact, here's the exact wording. This comes from our doctrinal statement. It's a document that's called What We Teach. It's the formal statement of faith. If you've ever applied for membership here, you were supposed to read it and and sign to it. This is the formal statement of faith that we use here at Grace Community Church, and it says this, quote, speaking in tongues and the working of sign miracles in the beginning days of the church were for the purpose of pointing to and authenticating the apostles as revealers of divine truth. These gifts were never intended to be characteristic of the lives of all believers. Now, it is also my contention that, as I said, I don't think anybody really believes full-on continuationism, and you are almost certainly a cessationist of, to some degree, even if you call yourself a continuationist, because you don't really believe that the Holy Spirit is doing everything today that he was doing in the early chapters of Acts. If, on the other hand, you are a true continuationist, if you, if you believe that everything we read of in the books of, book of Acts is going on and should be going on in the church today, then you're not only a rare person if you believe that, but you're harboring some dangerous ideas. And I want to show you why. And I'll start with this. I think it is a clear and indisputable fact of Scripture that the miraculous gifts of the apostolic era did have a clearly defined and very specific purpose. And I contend also that it's clear in Scripture that these gifts did diminish in both frequency and importance, and they faded from use completely after the era that's described in the book of Acts, before the, the, even the canon of the New Testament was completed, many years before the New Testament canon was complete. And by the way, I'll acknowledge that fewer and fewer people nowadays are willing to admit that they hold cessationist opinions, but that was practically standard evangelical and Protestant doctrine for centuries until just about 70 years ago or so. And in fact, prior to the start of the 20th century, it would have been hard to find any Protestant anywhere who believed that the charismata had continued uninterrupted from the time of the apostles throughout all of church history. You had Catholics who made some fantastic claims about miracles, some of them visible, some of them invisible, and made claims about papal infallibility and apostolic succession and whatever. But even the Catholics would have argued that all of the gifts 
they're, they're not the same in proportion and style as we see in the book of Acts, because it was patently obvious that no pope and no bishop had the power to do the kind of miracles the apostles did at the start of the church age. And also, until the charismatic movement seeped into the Roman Catholic Church, for example, speaking in tongues was virtually unknown among Catholics. And even the earliest charismatics, the very first tongue speakers at the beginning of the 20th century, they knew that the gift of tongues had, for all practical purposes, ceased in the first century, and early charismatics claimed that what they were doing is recovering the spiritual gifts, which had lapsed into disuse for thousands of years. They didn't try to teach that the charismata had been continually in common use since the time of the apostles. They couldn't make that claim, mainly because it's a simple matter of historical fact that those gifts did not continue unabated through church history. So from the second half of the first century until the dawn of the 20th century, with the exception, and there are rare exceptions, but with the exceptions of, of a handful of assorted kooks and heretics, nobody of any influence or repute even claimed to have the gift of speaking in tongues for thousands of years. That gift simply was not part of normal church life for almost 1,900 years. And that's also true with some of the other miraculous gifts. There are isolated reports of rare miraculous healings throughout the church era, but, but the, no one credibly demonstrated anything that could be called the gift of healing. And by the way, I believe God does heal. I believe he sometimes heals miraculously, but I don't think anybody has the gift of healing that's described in the New Testament. Now, a number of people did claim throughout church history that they had special prophetic gifts, There were lots of Gnostics who made that claim. There were a couple of very strange prophetesses in one of the earliest cults, the the Montanists, these two women who supposedly would go into trances and, and utter words of knowledge. And then you have various people like, you know, Joseph Smith and Ellen G. White, who founded dangerous cults, who believed they had prophetic gifts. And there were other self-proclaimed prophets who drifted around the fringes of orthodoxy, people like Savonarola, one of the predecessors of the Protestant Reformation. He claimed to have the gift of prophecy. Charismatics will sometimes point out that even Charles Spurgeon sometimes believed that the Lord had providentially given him insight, or, or it seemed that way anyway. Spurgeon frequently warned people, though, that it's, it's dangerous to think that some spontaneous thought that pops into your head is a message from God. He warned people against thinking that way, and he never claimed that he had any special gift of prophecy. But charismatics, nevertheless, occasionally point to Spurgeon's flashes of intuition at times and say, well, that proves he was a prophet and a charismatic. But anyway, you try to account for prophetic claims throughout church history, one thing that stands out clearly is this. In contrast to the almost nonstop claims we hear today from people who believe that God is giving them private revelation, people even writing books full of words they say were inspired by God, those claims are uncommon and exceptional if, if you take the history of Orthodox Christianity as a whole. That's an unusual thing in church history. 
and yet it's epidemic today. In fact, I wish I had time to give you a a broad overview of some of the groups and individuals throughout church history who, who did claim to have miraculous gifts, because that in and, in and of itself would be instructive. Most, For the most part, they are just kooks and cranks and spiritual eccentrics, including not only the first 30 or 40 years of 20th century Pentecostal miracle workers, but also you could include the vast majority of charismatic televangelists who are out there today, these masters of charismatic hype like Benny Hinn and Rich, Rick Joyner and, and the lineup of clowns and charlatans who dominate Christian television today. And if you watch TBN, my advice is don't. But it is a, a simple fact of church history that the mainstream of believers who have been the most theologically orthodox, the, the most biblically oriented, They have not believed or claimed that they have apostolic miracle-working gifts at their disposal until the last 75 years or so, 50 to 75 years, and the tide has turned in a dramatic way, and I would guess that today, if we took a poll of everybody who self-identifies as evangelical, including some pastors and Bible teachers whom I typically respect more than others, and many non-charismatics among them, more and more people have adopted what they claim is a continuationist view, the idea that the spiritual gifts should be as operational today as they were in the book of Acts. And I said, some of them aren't even charismatics. How you can be a continuationist and a non-charismatic is beyond me. But I do meet people like that all of the time, and the reason they give invariably is that they don't believe cessationism is taught in the Bible. Specifically, they say things like, there is no verse in Scripture that says the charismata will cease at a particular date or time. In fact, there is only one passage in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, where it does say, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. But if you study the context of that verse, that seems to point to a time yet future when we're going to see Christ face to face. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know as, as I've been fully known. And so they say First Corinthians 13.8 is not a definitive or convincing cessationist text. And so I say, okay, let's go with that. For the sake of argument, we'll concede that there is not a definitive proof text that tells us these miracle gifts are going to cease in the first century or even that the apostolic era will end. There's no text in Scripture that predicts that. So if there's not a single tidy proof text Is that a persuasive argument against cessationism? And the answer is, of course not, because that's not really any different. That argument isn't any different from the argument of the Jehovah's Witnesses who point out that there's also not a single proof text that proves the whole doctrine of the Trinity. And so what's our answer to that? Our answer is that the doctrine of the Trinity is the fruit of comparing Scripture with Scripture and understanding everything the Bible teaches about the Godhead. 
And if you study that, you'll come out a Trinitarian. The same principle applies to cessationism. There may not be a tidy proof text, but if you study everything Scripture says about this, it argues powerfully against the charismatic view. And cessationists base their conviction not on a single proof text or some exegetical, purely exegetical argument. This is a theological conclusion that is drawn from a number of biblical and historical and doctrinal facts. To begin with, Scripture does teach that these miraculous gifts, the charismata, had a specific and foundational and temporary purpose. They are part of a hierarchy of supernatural signs and wonders that were associated with the founding of the church, and that hierarchy is outlined very clearly here in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 through 30. And that text expressly states that these miraculous gifts are not given universally to everyone in the church. Look at it, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all translate? And Paul there is using a common rhetorical form that assumes a no answer. The obvious answer to all of those questions he asks is no. These gifts are not for everybody. Gifts of tongues and miracles specifically are not for everyone in the same way that not all leaders in the church are apostles. Now, I'd be willing to bet that regardless of whatever your particular views are on the charismatic gifts, unless you are, I mean, I don't think we have many people like that who who would come to Grace Life, but unless you are far out on the fringe of charismatic lunacy, you probably believe that the apostolic office ended with the death of the apostle John. There have not been any true apostles since him. Well, here's the thing. There's no proof text for that. And I'm fairly certain that practically everyone here shares the historic Protestant conviction that the canon of Scripture is complete as we have it, and the canon is closed. God is not adding new Scriptures to the text of of the Bible in the New Testament. Here's the thing about that. There is no easy, irrefutable proof text for that either. But the biblical and historical rationale that you use to justify your belief that the canon is closed and that the the apostolic era has ceased, that's the same biblical and theological logic that persuades me that the miraculous gifts served their purpose in the apostolic generation and they no longer functioned in the church. And I'll go further. I think Most sensible evangelicals believe that too, including those who call themselves continuationists. In other words, all of us, all sane believers today, we all recognize that the apostolic era was unique, and there were things happening then in the early chapters of Acts that have not continued, and they haven't occurred since. And in fact, no one but the rankest charismatic crackpot would ever claim to be a pure and complete continuationist. We all believe that certain things stopped happening before the book of Acts was even finished. 
And even if you're a charismatic, even if you say you believe all the charismatic gifts are functioning today exactly the way they did in the book of Acts, I doubt you would be willing to put that claim to the test. In my 50 years as a believer, I have never once encountered a verifiable, authenticated, apostolic quality miracle, nor have I ever met any charismatic who is willing to subject his miracle gift claims to any kind of careful and biblical scrutiny. And I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my best friend was the son of a famous charismatic faith healer. And he wouldn't put his miracles to the test. And I don't know a charismatic who would. So think about this. Millions of people claim to be speaking in tongues, but are there any verifiable cases where you have a recognizable, translatable, identifiable language like you see at Pentecost? Has any charismatic preacher ever truly raised a Eutychus from the dead? Or can you point to a single charismatic who claims to have a gift of healing and a record of successful healings like Peter or Paul in the New Testament? So let's consider the biblical data. And sadly, we barely have time for a, a high-altitude overview, but I'm, I'm going to be, try to be as thorough and fair as I can. And we're going to breeze through the book of Acts and look at this. And it's clear, isn't it? Early in the book of Acts, miracles are a key part of the story. The book starts, of course, with the great miracle of Pentecost. And then in Acts 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple and they encounter a a beggar, a paraplegic, a man who has been lame from birth. And Peter looks at him, Acts 3, verse 6, and says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And the guy is instantly and completely healed. And Acts 5.12 tells us, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were regularly happening among the people. Verse 15, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the multitude from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And listen to this, they were all being healed all of them. It wasn't that they had cases they couldn't deal with. It wasn't that sporadically here and there there were healings. Everybody who sought healing from the apostles, the apostles had that gift and that ability. Now, again, I apologize for the speed with which we have to cover this, but I want you to notice this amazing outpouring of apostolic miracles continues all through the book of Acts. You can jump to chapter 19, Acts 19, verse 11. It says this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So even the apostle Paul could could do these healing miracles and deliverance miracles and so on, so that cloths and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Those, by the way, those are the signs of an apostle that Paul mentions in in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Those miracles were the proof that the Apostle Paul spoke and taught with full apostolic authority. Again, God was doing extraordinary miracles, and listen to this, by the hands of Paul. How extraordinary were these miracles? Well, they weren't just invisible ailments. 
migraines and backaches, you, you can be absolutely certain that these were not sleight-of-hand tricks like the guy who lengthens people's legs. In fact, you want an example? Acts 20, the next chapter. This is near the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's in Troas, and his sermon runs a little long past midnight. I love that. And Eutychus, this kid, drifts off, and he falls from a third-story window and dies instantly from the impact, verse 10. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long time until daybreak and then left, and they took away the boy alive and were not a little bit comforted. Think about this. Eutychus didn't even have to take time off while his bruises and broken bones healed up. He was fully and instantly healed, resurrected from the dead. And then you have the final miracle recorded in the book of Acts, and it happens on the island of Malta. That's Darlene's favorite place in the world. Malta, Acts 28, verse 7. The leading man of the island named Publius, as a father who is lying afflicted with fever and dysentery, and Paul, going to see him and having prayed, laid his hands on him and healed him. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. Dysentery. It's not as dramatic, perhaps, as, you know, raising the dead, but it is significant because about a decade after this, sometime after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, but before he was finally incarcerated there and and died there, Paul learns that Timothy is battling some intestinal affliction, and he includes some simple medical advice in his first epistle to Timothy. 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Why would he tell him that if he still had the gift, the ability to instantly heal? It seems clear that neither Timothy nor anyone around him had a gift of healing like Peter's, as described in Acts 5.16, where people who were sick or afflicted were all being healed, all of them, simply by, in some cases, exposure to Peter's shadow. And remember, Acts 19.12 says the mere touch from an apron that had touched Paul's skin could heal people and permanently deliver them from demonic oppression. The diseases left them and the evil spirits went out, Acts says. So you got to ask, why didn't Paul just send an anointed prayer cloth to Timothy to heal him from his digestive ailments? The fact is, miracles are not as common near the end of the apostolic era as they are at the very beginning. Because the purpose of these miracles was to establish the authority of the apostles. And once that was established, the miracles didn't happen. You don't see them happening in the later chapters of of the New Testament. By the time Paul is writing pastoral epistles, he makes no mention of miraculous gifts at all. Zero. The subject never even comes up. Why? Because those things served a specific purpose, and it was not to suggest that the life of every Christian is supposed to be one long string of miracles. Signs and wonders and miracles are expressly called the signs of a true apostle in 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. 
So the miraculous elements that were so common in the early apostolic church, these had this specific foundational purpose to validate and authenticate the apostles' authority. And the apostles, of course, were instruments of divine revelation, and the miracles were the verification that these men who were claiming to speak for God were indeed speaking the truth of God with God's authorization. In the words of Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 4, God was testifying with them, bearing them witness, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. That's what established the authority of the apostles. But weren't miraculous gifts also bestowed on people who were not apostles? I mean, you have in Acts 8, for example, Philip, who's not an apostle, is doing miracles in Samaria. That's where Simon Magus tries to buy the power to work signs and wonders. But notice what Scripture says about this. Acts chapter 8, verse 18, when Simon, that's Simon Magus, the bad guy, saw that the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, it's interesting. If you just think this through, Philip was there. He could do miracles. But if he had the power to convey miraculous gifts through the laying on of hands, then why didn't Simon try to get that from him? He understood that only the apostles had the authority to convey these gifts. This is a a unique prerogative of the apostles. Walt Chantry wrote years ago a, a superb little book published by Banner of Truth called The Signs of the Apostles. And he points out that, and I'm quoting him, every recorded instance of men in the church receiving these gifts occurred under the direct ministry of an apostle, so that even the general exercise of miraculous gifts in the Corinthian church served as a testimony to the prophetic authority of the apostles. And indeed, Think about it. How could it be otherwise? Because if every Christian had the power to appropriate miraculous gifts for himself, whether, whether by faith or some other means, signs and wonders could not be the signs of a true apostle. If every Christian was supposed to have them, and if you want an exegetical argument in favor of cessationism, there you are. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, these are signs of a true apostle. And furthermore, you can see clear evidence in Scripture that once the foundational purpose of these sign gifts was fulfilled, all the signs and wonders left. They never became a major aspect of daily church life and ministry. That's why the pastoral epistles don't mention this at all. They were not intended for that purpose. The priority, even then, as now, was the preaching of the gospel, not the doing of signs and wonders. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23, Jews ask for signs, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. So people were begging for signs, and Paul preached instead. Once the message was fully authenticated, Miracles quickly fade into the background, and of all of the epistles that instruct us on church life, church leadership, ministry priorities, Christian living, of all of those epistles, only 1 Corinthians, which is the earliest of the Pauline epistles, that's the only book that even mentions the charismata. And that he does to rebuke the Corinthians for their abuse 
and their undue fascination with these miraculous phenomena. And no later epistle even mentions the supernatural gifts. Even the book of James, one of the very earliest epistles, doesn't tell us to look for people with gifts of healing. James tells sick people to summon the elders of the church and enlist their prayers. Now, the standard charismatic answer to that argument is they'll say, well, that violates the principle of Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's the, that's the favorite, perhaps the single most favorite charismatic argument. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. Why would things change? Well, let's test that argument by comparing Scripture with Scripture, shall we? In the first place, Hebrews 13.8 isn't about charismatic gifts. It's not even in the context. Much less does that verse deal with the question of what changed in the church when the apostolic era wound down. But Hebrews 13.8 is a statement about the unchanging character of Christ. That verse is one of the great proof texts of the deity of Christ because it's saying that Jesus is immutable. He's unchanging in his character and his attributes. But it doesn't teach that all of God's dealings with believers are the same in every era. In fact, it's clear from Scripture that that's not the case. We know, for example, that some important things have changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In fact, the very first book, the very first verse of the book of Hebrews makes that point. In fact, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. To rip that one verse out of its context and have it nullify the main message of the book of Hebrews is a horrific abuse of Scripture. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is that the ceremonial law of the Old Testament is no longer binding on believers in the New Testament era, so that the priesthood and the tabernacle and the whole sacrificial system are no longer part of God's dealings with His people. Why? Because all of those things pointed to something better, and now that the better thing has come, the inferior things are done away with. That, by the way, is the same argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, where he is dealing with spiritual gifts, and he says, when the perfect comes, the partial is done away. And as a matter of fact, that is the principle that makes some degree of cessationism a necessity for people who take the Bible seriously. There is ample proof in Scripture to demonstrate that although God Himself is unchanging, He doesn't necessarily manifest His power or reveal Himself in the same way in every age. So that Hebrews 13.8 cannot be used to prove that the apostolic gifts are supposed to be constant throughout the history of the church. That's not what that verse is teaching. And in fact, the problem with the Hebrews 13.8 argument, the way the Charismatics use it, is that would prove too much. Because if everything in the book of Acts should be happening now, that suggests that these things also should have been happening throughout the whole of redemptive history. Were miracles commonplace throughout the Old Testament? And for that matter, did anyone repeat any of the miracles that Moses did? If the principle of Hebrews 8 proves absolute continuationism, then why are miracles relatively rare even in the Old Testament and also at the end of the New Testament? After Moses in the Old Testament, you have multiple miracles from Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, and you have a handful of isolated miracles that involve a few of the judges and prophets, 
But miracles are by no means commonplace in the Old Testament, nor are they a reliable gauge of whether God is working or not, because God is always working providentially. But miracle gifts, by definition, are extremely rare. Consider John the Baptist. Here's what Jesus said about him, Matthew 11, verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. All right, so if miracle-working power is a measure of one's greatness and spiritual abilities, if that's the proof you're filled with the Holy Spirit, wouldn't you expect someone like John the Baptist to be an amazing miracle worker? According to Luke 1, verse 17, he was sent before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. All of those things describe John the Baptist. You'd think, all right, this guy's going to be a real worker of miracles, right? But listen to John 10, 41. John, John the Baptist, did no sign, zero miracles, no healings, no demonic deliverances. And this is a guy who was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. No great cosmic signs and wonders. So what happens to the typical application of Hebrews 13.8 in light of John the Baptist's ministry? In fact, the The question must be asked, if the immutability of God means he can never alter any of the gifts or offices in the church, then why don't we have apostles today who can teach with full apostolic authority? If continuationism is true, why not? Now, grant, there have been a few charismatic leaders who claim apostolic authority for themselves. There are charismatics today who do believe the office of apostle is fully functional today. But evangelical charismatics, the vast majority of charismatics who have any kind of doctrinal scruples at all, they don't really believe there are apostles today who have the same authority as the capital A apostles in the early church, you know, men with infallible teaching authority in the same same mode as Peter or Paul or James or John in the New Testament. There is nobody like that today. I have read and researched a number of charismatic books, and only a few fringe groups and extremists claim true apostolic authority for their leaders. And the majority of charismatics today argue against that because they understand that if someone claims for himself that kind of authority, it is almost certainly going to be abused. Some charismatics will use the term apostle, but then they try to qualify it by by insisting that the apostleship that they recognize today is actually a lesser kind of apostleship than the infallible authority that belonged to the apostles in the first century. So, okay, think through the implications of that position. If by arguing for a lesser kind of apostleship, they're actually conceding that the New Testament gift of apostle has ceased. They've, in in effect, embraced a degree of cessationism themselves. So let me say this again plainly. Every true evangelical, charismatic or not, every true evangelical does hold to some form of cessationism. We all believe that the canon of Scripture is closed. We don't believe that we should be seeking to add new inspired material to the New Testament canon. We hold to the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And those who don't hold to that aren't really evangelical at all. They're cultists. 
We have a definite body of truth that was delivered in the person of Christ and through the teaching of the apostles, and then it was inscripturated in the New Testament. And that's our source of authority. We believe Scripture as we have it is complete and sufficient, and anyone who doesn't believe that isn't really an an evangelical. Anyone who would add anything to the Word of God is a cultist and a false teacher. But notice this. If you acknowledge that the canon is closed and the, the gift of apostleship has ceased, you have already conceded the very heart of the cessationist argument. Something significant has changed since the apostolic era. We all know that. We all believe that, even if you don't want to admit it. And as a matter of fact, many charismatic leaders go even further than just saying, yeah, I believe, uh, I believe this is a different kind of apostleship. In fact, the more sane and sober, well, let's say this, in their more sane and sober moments, the best of charismatics are forced to admit that all of the charismatic gifts that are in operation today are, all of them, of a lesser quality than the gifts you read about in the New Testament, starting with the gift of tongues. It's not like what happened at, at Pentecost. If you've ever watched people speaking in tongues, you know this. And in fact, Wayne Grudem, one of the leading continuationists, one of the better continuationists, wrote a book titled The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament, and today it was published, first of all, in 1988. There's a revised edition out now, but it's substantially the same material. And in that book, written to defend the practice of seeking personal prophecies that come directly from God, Grudem writes that there is no responsible charismatic, those are his exact words, no responsible charismatic, he says, holds the view that prophecy today is infallible and inerrant revelation from God. He says charismatics are arguing for, and again, his exact words, a lesser kind of prophecy, which he says is not on the same level as the inspired prophecies of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles and which he says the, the gift of prophecy in, that's functioning today may even be fallible, which I think is an understatement because if you listen to charismatic prophets, you find out they miss it far more than they get it. Grudem says, quote, these are his exact words, there is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement that today's prophecy is impure and will contain elements which are not to be obeyed or trusted. My question is, what good is a a prophecy like that? Another leading charismatic theologian, uh, at least in terms of popularity, is Jack Deere. He's a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary who became a charismatic, and he wrote a famous book in the early 1990s titled Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, where he described how he became a charismatic. Zondervan published that book in 1993. And Jack Deere admits that he has never seen anyone today performing miracles or possessing gifts on the same level as what is manifested in the apostolic era. He's never seen that. And throughout his book, he insists that, and I think wrongly, because if you listen to charismatics, you know he's wrong about this, but he insists that modern charismatics don't really claim to have apostolic quality gifts and miracle abilities. One of his main lines of defense against critics of the charismatic movement is his claim that the modern charismatic gifts are actually lesser gifts than what were available in the apostolic era, and therefore, he says, 
Charismatics today shouldn't be held to apostolic standards or tested by comparing them to the New Testament miracles. Now again, consider the implications of that claim. Today's apologists for charismatic theology in effect concede the entire cessationist argument when they say that. They virtually admit that they are cessationists of a sort because they believe that the true apostolic gifts and miracles have ceased, and they acknowledge that what they are doing today is not what is described in the New Testament. And that's really a self-evident truth. It's not what's described in the New Testament. Contemporary tongue speakers do not speak in understandable or translatable dialects the way the apostles and their followers did at Pentecost. Not one single tongue speaker has ever gone to a foreign mission field and miraculously been able to preach the gospel in the tongue of his hearers. Charismatic missionaries go to language school just like everybody else. And no modern worker of miracles or healings can actually duplicate what is described in the apostolic era. Even the most vocal advocates of the gift of prophecy admit that no modern prophet can legitimately claim to have infallible authority because they all prophesy wrongly. They're all false prophets by definition. No modern faith healer can actually produce instant visible healings that are like the healings we see in the New Testament. And although lots of charismatics make fantastic claims about miracles, there's not a single modern faith healer who is opening the eyes of the blind or, or able to make a truly lame person walk. People with visible, incurable ailments are routinely screened out in the healing lines at charismatic meetings. Ask Justin Peters about that because he's gone to them, and he's been purposely screened out. And above all, despite many fanciful and unsubstantiated legends that are passed around at times, despite the vast numbers of charismatics who claim the ability to do even greater works than Jesus himself, there is not one single credible, verifiable case of a charismatic miracle worker who can raise the dead. The simple fact is the gifts that operate in the charismatic movement today are not the same gifts described in the New Testament, and even most charismatics ultimately have to admit that. There's a very helpful book, uh, again, published in the 1990s. Nobody wants to write on this issue in recent years, but in the middle of the 90s, uh, Craigle published a book by Thomas Edgar called Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit. It's a very good book analyzing charismatic claims, and he says this, quote, The charismatic movement gained credence and initial acceptance by claiming their gifts are the same as those in the book of Acts. For most people, this is why they are credible today. That is because people believe the charismatic movement offers the promise of the same gifts described in the New Testament. And yet now, he says, when challenged by the obvious fact that their gifts don't meet biblical standards, One of their primary defenses is the claim that the gifts are not the same as those in the New Testament, and so faced with the facts, they have had to revoke the very foundation of their original reason for existence. In other words, they can't really defend continuationism. And unfortunately, the popular appeal of the charismatic movement is now so widespread that most Christians don't even trouble themselves any longer about whether these things are biblical or not. The question of whether the apostolic gifts 
were intended to operate throughout the church age is increasingly ignored by evangelicals as the church of our generation becomes more and more open to increasingly bizarre phenomena and less and less open to serious theological dialogue. The truth is that even in Scripture, there is ample evidence that miracles were always extraordinary, rare events. They're always associated with people who spoke inspired and infallible utterances. And it's obvious that all the miracle, all the miraculous gifts in the New Testament had dramatically declined in frequency even before the apostolic era drew to a close. So here's the problem when it comes down to it. Strict continuationism is untenable both in light of Scripture and church history. In the time we have left, I want to talk briefly to you about miracles in general, because I think we use this word miracle way too loosely. We, we untie a knot in a, in a shoelace and say, that's a miracle. And, and I'm, glad, I'm glad you give God the credit for giving you the grace and strength and patience necessary to untie that knot. You know, he, it's true, God deserves thanks for everything that ever goes right in this sin-cursed world. But untying that knot was a work of providence. It was not, it's not even an extraordinary work of providence. It's certainly not a miracle. So what is a miracle? Christians commonly label things miracles when they really aren't. Here's a, here's a guy who has a financial need and he prays that the Lord will meet it. And on that same day, he receives a gift of some money in exactly the amount he needed. All right, did God answer his prayer? Absolutely. Was that a miracle? No, it wasn't. It was an act of providence. God worked through normal means, orchestrating events through his providence, which works over all things, in order to answer that believer's prayer. And these are important distinctions. People cheapen the biblical concept of miracles by referring to every answer to prayer as a miracle. And it doesn't diminish the power of God one bit to acknowledge that ordinarily God works through acts of providence and not by miraculous means. So let me give you two definitions to remember. First, what do I mean by providence? Well, providence is God's faithful moment-by-moment control over everything he has made to ensure that everything achieves the end he chooses. God is working in everything that happens. He didn't create the universe and wind it up like a clock and then abandon it to let it run on its own. Some people envision God standing apart from his creation, just letting things happen, and he only intervenes occasionally and always miraculously. But Scripture teaches us that God exercises ongoing control of every detail of everything that happens. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. So answers to our prayers, those genuinely come from God, but they come through acts of providence normally, not by miracles. You know, we sometimes are pr- say, we, well, I'm praying that God will do a miracle 
to answer my financial need or cure my health problems or whatever. But when we pray for such things, we are not necessarily, in fact, not usually praying for miracles in the biblical sense. In the vast majority of our prayers, we are actually asking God to work through providence to grant the thing we we request. And these acts of providence, not even extraordinary acts of providence, they're not miracles. Now, listen carefully, because to say something is not a miracle is not to deny that God did it, because God constantly governs our lives through providence. To say he works through providence is not to say that he is inactive. In fact, it's the polar opposite. He is active in every aspect of our lives, not just the events that appear to be dramatic or spectacular. I've been accused by charismatics of robbing God of glory for denying that every answer to my prayers is miraculous. My reply is, it's the charismatic view that robs God of glory by assuming that he's just totally inactive unless he intervenes in a miraculous way. So what is a miracle? Here's the second definition. In the biblical sense, a miracle is an extraordinary work of God that involves the immediate and unmistakable intervention of God into the physical realm in a way that contravenes natural processes. It's not necessarily, you know, a miracle when my sore knee feels better after I prayed for relief. A miracle would be if God regenerated all the cartilage and and restored my ACL completely without any surgery or treatment of any kind. That would be a miracle. Now, the subject of miracles is a huge one, and, and I regret that we're out of time, really, so I can't delve any more deeply into it. But there is one last text that I am determined to deal with, so I'm going to keep you a, a couple of minutes late. John 14, verse 12, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, who he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, he cannot possibly mean that his followers are going to do more spectacular miracles, because in point of fact, even the apostles did not do more spectacular miracles. To my knowledge, no one has ever raised from the dead a man who lay in the grave four days and had already started to decompose. Jesus did that. Nobody's nobody's done a greater resurrection miracle than that. But the disciples' works were greater in scope and in effect. They took the gospel to the ends of the earth, according to Acts 13, 47. According to Acts 17, 6, the early disciples turned the world upside down. So Jesus wasn't suggesting that they were going to do displays of supernatural power that would outshine the miracles Christ himself did. The greater works he talked about were more far-reaching evangelistic works, not more astonishing miracles. Charismatics sometime, sometimes accuse non-charismatics of believing that God isn't active anymore in his church, but that utterly misses the point. God is active. Whether he works through miracles or through providence, he's active. And, and in fact, faith, so-called faith that requires constantly being bolstered by spectacular signs and wonders, that's not faith at all. The faith that rests in the knowledge that God is working through providence is a greater faith than the attitude that demands proof through signs and wonders. In fact, to demand signs and wonders is to walk by sight rather than by faith. 
And Jesus condemned people who demanded signs and wonders before they would believe. Mark 8, verses 11 through 12, you can read it for yourself. True faith does not demand miraculous signs and wonders. To the eyes of faith, the glory of God is revealed in the simplest act of providence, just as clearly as it is revealed in the most dramatic miracle. True believers can see the hand of God directly in everyday events. We don't need miracles to bolster our confidence that God is working all things together for our good and for His glory. And with that, I'm going to stop. I don't want to, but I will. Let's pray. Father, we live in confused and confusing times. Just as our Lord foretold, when false teachers would come in Jesus' name and pretend to do deceptive signs and wonders, we know that the true test of a prophet is that he speaks the truth. So give us discerning minds and believing hearts and make our souls thirsty for what is true and genuine rather than things that are cheap and phony. And give us boldness to proclaim the gospel, to stand for the truth, and to be faithful to Christ in a culture that is increasingly hostile, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.